This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. There was a time when uh, the New York Times uh, had a little more spine and they would have called out the president for saying we should inject Lysol as a way to solve COVID-19. People already ran the story about the drug, and I can't remember the name of it, um, where two people died from, from taking the advice of the president they heard on Fox News, right? You know, but when we've got the New York Times wading into that bullshit mix and fomenting this misinformation, we have a serious slide of cultural norms. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, an interview show. My name's Nate Bowling, and I'm your host, an American teacher abroad. Uh, today's conversation is actually a continuation of a previous episode. Right before I left to move to the United Arab Emirates, uh, I sat down for a conversation about the book, How Democracies Die. And we had a conversation about that, put it out in the show, I'll link to it in the show notes. And this is a book that I read about a year ago that I've been really just kind of pondering and thinking about the rise of authoritarianism in the United States, the decline in democracy, and all the ways and all the metaphors we can use. Like I've used the metaphor of a frog in a pot. I've used the metaphor of a funky apartment. Uh, essentially, like this is a book about how the American social contract and the political arrangements that like we've lived under that have brought us represent democracy for over 200 years. Well, hold on. That brought white folks representing democracy for 200 years and black Americans representing democracy since 1968 are coming kind of afraid and asunder. And so like that episode was important to me, in particular by the fact I was moving to an undemocratic country. Well, I've been here for about eight months now and I want to revisit that conversation. And so I reached out to three past guests of the show, and we're going to have a talk today. Uh, the book was called How Democracy Dies. Uh, I'm going to call this episode How Democracy is Dying. And so my guest today from the News Tribune, uh, Andrew Hammond. Andrew, what's up? How you doing, sir? Doing very well. Uh, also from the University of Washington, Tacoma, professor, author, uh, a real one, Ingrid Walker. Hey. And then the impetus for this conversation actually was a conversation I was having with Tacoma communicator, uh, walking enthusiasm, mom, jogger, and uh, I don't know, mistress of books, Hallie Kanigi. Hallie, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. Hallie, can you, can, can you, why did you want to revisit this book? Um, I feel like first we should give, I mean, people could guess by the title of the book, this isn't going to be an uplifting conversation to listen to. Yeah, uh, for sure. <laughs> um, but I read this book back in July 2019 when it was a Nerd Farm Reads book. Um, and it's the book was written in 2018. And um, it's just a really, reading reading it in 2019, I felt like, it gave me better clarity to understand and process the world that we were living in. Um, it's the author goes back and they look at all these different societies that had been under democratic rule. And basically what are the moments leading up to the point when they flipped into an authoritarian regime and basically pull out um, these like really clear steps that took place in each of these scenarios and then um, like a couple of contributing factors that just made societies more likely to make that flip and reading this book you're kind of like okay oh there's one there's one there's one there's one and you feel like um, you're looking at the blueprint for a house that you you've already halfway built um, so that's how I felt in July 2019 and then one of the big themes of this of the book too um is they talk about like war times and times of great strife and hardship and fear and how those settings can really lend to the rise of an autocrat because people are afraid they can sneak through policies that might people might have um, spoken up about in in previous times and looking at what is going on with this global pandemic and the United States response to it it just feels like every day there's a new no news story that's ringing the alarm bells like, oh, no, the book, the prophecy, it comes true, it comes true. Um, 
So that's that's how I'm feeling on this Saturday morning. <laughs> uh, Ingrid, what in particular are some of the red flags that you've seen happen uh, recently in the U.S. that are indicative of a slide into tyranny? Wow, it's a long list. And actually, the authors do this great job in the middle of the book of sort of collecting them all. It, it was almost an overwhelming paragraph to read. But um, the upshot is that politics have become zero sum, right? So it's winner take all. And um, so we have this problem where we've been in a place of um, special interest packs, right? You know, flooding the market with money. And so that our so that our elections become really extreme. We have Operation Red Map, which has gerrymandered us within an inch of our lives. And so that we're not, whatever pretense we had at um, representative democracy is gone. We have police violence uh, continuing and exacerbated against black and brown people, especially we have immigration ban, we have detention centers, we have a border wall, and we have an, an ongoing assault against reproductive rights. I mean, these are just some. Um, but one of my favorites, really favorite, uh, is that the extremity has become so normalized that we're, we just sort of, we're all, I think, shocked. So that when the DOJ brought out a the Department of Justice brought out a memo, I think it was in 2018, saying they're going to reinstitute the idea that prosecutors could go for capital punishment for drug sellers, and nobody blinked. I thought, oh, this is the world we're living in. So yeah. the assault, you know, continues. It's striking for me to be here in this country uh, that is a absolute monarchy. And in this, in this country, I'm teaching American students about the American government. So 60% of the students at my school are U.S. citizens. The percentage is higher in my AP government class for obvious reasons. And the number of times where they stop me and go, but how can it happen that way? And how can it happen that way? Uh, I'm out of answers that are like nuanced and thoughtful. And I'm to the point that just I've been saying to students, the American president is basically empowered to do whatever the American president wants that Congress allows. And I that has some really, really like like dire consequences on, on the back end uh, for the audience on the network. We're trying to kind of date and, and timestamp shows. And so we're recording this on September 25th. So here in UAE is the first day of Ramadan. Uh, I'm hungry. I'm kidding. I'm not fasting because, like, I need food. Uh, but this is the day after the American president told people to eat Lysol, sorry, to, to consume Lysol or consume disinfectant. And then this morning, my time, uh, he's trying to walk that back in saying it's sarcastic. But, like, that's kind of the point that we are. Uh, Andrew, you were talking to me about, like, the Wisconsin primary, Wisconsin vote uh, that happened with uh, the during the, the outbreak. Why was yeah. that a trigger for you about what's happening in the States? So it, it, and it's kind of a... I'm, I'm kind of nervous about it um, be, because it also, it means what's going to happen in November and not just necessarily, you know, who's going to get elected or what's going to happen, but in the middle of a pandemic, right in the heart and maybe at the height of it, we are asking people to go out when we have the capability to do absentee balloting, uh, absentee, you know, voting and balloting and all of that, but we're having people go out in the middle of a pandemic where they could be exposed to this and some of the most uh, diverse and uh, highly populated black cities in America and Wisconsin, they did five or they did a few things that really, really frustrated me. It was they closed down so many polling places that there were just five. And I believe Milwaukee itself and Milwaukee is a top 30, top 40 city when it comes to, uh, when it comes to population, then after that, you're seeing so many people on all these lines and, you know, it's taking people, you know, and I believe in Texas, it took uh, one man like t 10 hours to just stand in line and vote. And he was late for work. And, you know, in the aftermath of what happened in Wisconsin, uh, 19 people, have, uh, there were 19 cases of coronavirus just from that. So clearly it's one of two things. It is we are endangering the public and we are endangering, uh, you know, certain electorates to go out and vote, but it's like, oh, hey, everything's okay when we all know it's not. And so in terms of down the road in November, if, we're, if we still haven't found a vaccine for this, or if we're still doing the social distancing, 
are you going to put people in more vulnerable states, you know, whether they be New York, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, uh, Michigan? Are we going to put all of these people at risk just to simply vote? And now all of a sudden, absentee ballot, absentee, you know, balloting and voting by mail, uh, the courts have shot that down. So it's it's very frustrating to see. And it's like, why are we why do we have to risk our lives to vote, which I vote and I'm proud to vote. But at the same time, I'm like, why am I seeing people having to risk their lives when we should be well past this? And that's neglect. That is taking advantage of uh, disenfranchised neighborhoods that have been there for decades. So it's it's very frustrating. Sorry if it's a rambling thing, but it's just very frustrating to see all of this go down, especially since we, you know, since I've been, I was reading that book and I was like, yep, that's, that's a byproduct of democracy's dying right there. Uh, Doug just reminded me uh, in the chat that I may have said September 25th, April 25th, my bad y'all. Uh, when you were saying that, uh, Andrew, it reminded me of a point that Kamal made a couple episodes back. Kamal was on talking about the census and essentially America is being forced to confront whether or not it's going to become a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy and that we're going to embrace the demographic change that's, sh that's hitting the nation or if we're going to allow America to become a essentially a white authoritarian ethno state with a disenfranchised minority. And so that sounds extreme, but like that's the kind of dichotomy that we face. The well, folks that are being, yeah, please. Oh, and, I say, um, and I've said I said this when I was living in Kansas at the time, and I thought that they were just going to like have me like move out, you know, involuntarily out of, out of the state of Kansas. But I said Donald Trump's election was the last stand for white America um, because they know the demographics are changing. They know that the shift in the electorates across the country are changing. And they can't stop it. Mm -hmm. um, so Donald Trump was basically just a, um, use a sports term, it was a goal line stand. They won the first round. If they win the second round, we're screwed. Demonstrative of some of those demographic changes. I think a stat that's floating around my head right now is, is that a majority of, of people in the United States below the age of 15 are people of color. Mm -hmm. And if we look at what happens in elections when like folks actually show up, um, People, normal, so a lot of folks are too damn busy to vote in off-year elections and midterm elections, so they really show up for the presidency. And the Republicans have lost the popular vote in 1992, 1996, 2000, 2012, 2016. So the demographic handwriting and numbers are on the wall. Uh, the question, I think the question this book was positing was to what extent were Republicans and conservatives and the right wing, and I treat those things as separate things, by the way. So to what extent are conservatives, Republicans, and the right wing really to toss democracy out to retain power? And I think the answer we're coming to is 100%. Hallie, you were talking about this being kind of a, a blueprint to you. What are some of the, in particular, like steps and actions that the president and the current administration has taken on that are like reflective of that blueprint to you? Um, well, I mean, this is the kind of book where you start. I was I started rereading it this week and every page you're like, whoa, I like, I like, I like <laughs> bookmarks. So, I mean, on page 23, it lays it out pretty clearly. There's the um table that's the four key indicators of authoritarian behavior and i highlighted one in every single one of the indicators the first is rejection of a weak commitment to democratic rules of the game so um to what andrew was just talking about do they attempt to undermine the legitimacy legitimacy of elections for example by refusing to accept credible electoral results um yeah and what what is going on <laughs> with the resistance to vote by mail um there's a lot right there. Uh, number two was denial of the legitimacy of political opponents. So, I mean, this goes back to 2016, but um, I mean, if you remember the chance of lock her up, we've got, do they base, baselessly describe their partisan rivals as criminals whose supposed violation of the law or potential to do so disqualifies them from full participation in the political arena. So that's two, two out of four, check, check. Um, Toleration or encouragement of violence. 
hello, just in the past week, the encouragement of people to go exercise their Second Amendment rights and take back their states and liberate the people. Um, check. And then number four, readiness to curtail civil liberties of opponents, including media. And that's, I think, one of the darkest things to me. Just I, I, um, I grew up in a family... Uh, of journalists. My parents met at a tiny daily newspaper. That was my first job out of school. Um, I am constantly subscribed to many uh, <laughs> news publications. I give money to nonprofit news organizations. It's just, it's um, something that's very important to me, um, even though I now work on the, the other side in PR. Um, but this, uh, to your point, Andrew, about um, the 2016 election being kind of the last stand, I feel like the last wall of not resistance, but um, the, the media is like kind of the last gatekeeper protecting the American people here. And when you get things like just yesterday, um, you know, the conversation about, oh yeah, just, you know, put some disinfectant inside your body or shine some UV light in there and then getting called on the idiocy of that statement and saying, Haha, it was just me trying to make the media look dumb. Um, the undermining of that institution is really terrifying to me. And it's been going on for years now. And I watch smart people in my own family who should have better media literacy um, get swept away in these right-wing news publications because the things that they're saying align better with their perception of reality. And they no longer believe that the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post are independent fact-based news. I don't even, I don't know that we have any tools to fight back against that. Like, I, I, I don't know how to fix that when um, the outlets that I look to for for my news and information are not believed. Like how, how do you argue with that? Yeah. Ingrid, you have an expertise in American culture and I know that you're very passionate about the idea that political identities are evolving from being like ideologies to identities. How is that evolution reflected in like what Hallie's saying? Yeah. I, um, I think it's reflecting both what Andrew and Hallie said, because the voter suppression issue is a big piece of this and hopefully I'll remember to come back to that. But, um, one of the things that, um, and I've got to remember how to pronounce both of their names, uh, Levitsky and Ziblatt, uh, talk about in the book is the ways in which our politics has become so bifurcated and polarized. We're so at the ends of the spectrum, largely because of, um, a couple of issues. One is, uh, cleaving along religious lines, right? So white um, evangelicals, just Christians, may I think something like 76% of them are in the Republican Party at this point, right? So, so pulling uh, pulling to one end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spectrum, you mentioned this, there's this issue in the way we, we are becoming a much more multi-ethnic culture. We have been a multi-ethnic culture, but we are, um, I think two years ago was the first year there were more uh, non-white babies born than than white babies, right, in the United States. So, so you're right. Like we are we are growingly becoming this very diverse culture, and that is threatening to the white supremacist right. So you've got these these identities cleaving, and the problem is that the parties have started to play to them in ways that are not inclusive. Um, so that the authors talk about identity politics having become party politics. I think that I'm going to read the quote. They said, being a Democrat or Republican has become not just a partisan affiliation, but an identity. And when it's an identity, it's, it's who you are. And it's very hard to disassociate your sense of politics from who you are. And, and there's a reason for that because, because we've gone through the civil rights era, because we've gone through, um, uh, LGBTQ rights era, because we're still struggling to, you know, come to a place of equity with gender. Um, and, and so I think culturally we aren't settled there. And so people who have opinions about that tend to polarize at the ends. Um, see if I can get back to the voter suppression issue. So I think those who have worked on behalf of enfranchising, making sure that people are, retain the rights that they have, um, have been not historically on just one side, but in the last 50 years, we've, we've pulled that way. I've been saying to my students that American politics is racialized. So even non-racial things have racialized outcomes. And 
we actually had AP exam review today and we're talking about redistricting gerrymandering. So because of the Supreme Court case, uh, Shaw versus Reno, you cannot redistrict strictly along racial lines. But we have a major party in the United States, the Democratic Party, that 90 percent of black Americans vote for. And we have another coalition, the Republican coalition, that is 90 percent white. And so if you do something that impacts Democrats, it's going to have a racial impact on Democrats, even though it's not a racial action. And then things and policies that are benefiting to Republicans, uh, either like on their face or like below the surface, are going to have a disproportionate like benefit for white Americans. That's not a question. It's just kind of like an observation and reaction to what you were saying. Absolutely. Could you... I, I think that you have a really interesting like like landscape and view on the idea of political norms. Yeah. Norms are one of these things that like I, I don't think we understood how important they were until they started going away. Right. What are some of the political norms that have been guardrails for American democracy that are being carpet bombed in this current moment? Um, the authors talk, they, they give them these two names. One is political forbearance, which means you agree to disagree um, and you, uh, we recognize, and anybody who's worked in community organizing a coalition building, you know, knows that you don't, there's no such magical unicorn as everybody agrees in politics, that everybody comes around something without, without recognizing the disproportionate way a policy or a decision might affect people. Um, so political forbearance, though, is this idea that, that the, par the parties in this bipartisan culture have agreed that when one party is running the show, they're running the show, and we're gonna we're gonna agree to disagree, but we're gonna try to work within that context. And I've forgotten the name of the second one. Pitch it to me. Let's see. Is it institutional forbearance? And then, uh, oh, crap, institutional forbearance. Yeah. And Anybody I'm blank too. Uh, okay. Well, it, so, so one of them is that you know you agree to disagree and, and work together, um, and you recognize the legitimacy of of each group and their views, uh, even though you disagree. So, I, so I'll stick with that one, and I'll come back to the one when I figure I it out. I got it. Oh. <laughs> what was it? Folkways, right? Does that sound right? Yeah, that's the norms. Oh shoot! Why do I not have? I have it somewhere. I have a million pages of notes. Just I wrote to you know, so I could forget it all. <laughs> that's how I that's how I do. Um, so the other thing, the other thing that, that happens though is that we um, have come to a place where we started to not recognize each other. So so political forbearance is important, and acting as if um, there is a norm in which we accept that we agree to disagree, but we can get work done collectively in, an, in, um, in a bipartisan way. The minute that starts to erode, um, we have a problem. So going back to identity politics, if my identity as a Democrat um, is assailed every time a circuit court judge is put up by the Republican Party, if I feel like, oh, that is cutting out my interests and I am angry about this, um, then I'm not going to see them as people that I can try to work with. So the importance of eroding that norm over time, which has has just which came to an apex during the Obama administration when it was almost laughable and everybody misbehaved during this time, because in the previous administration, Democratic administration uh, before Clinton, uh, the GOP had a rise, the Tea Party had a rise and they were uh, obstructionist. And then when Bush was in, in and there was a Democratic Congress they were obstructionist and it just it just has become this pattern of pulling against each other cleaving to identities that seem more extreme than maybe they actually are in some places and not giving the other party any legitimacy or any ability to do anything so so there's no way we can come together and legislate across lines um those norms for me the thing that's so important about this is that again i said this earlier but it, it means that we've gone from politics as becoming a legislative action where we're thinking about the, the collective good or trying to do well for most people most of the time to thinking about it as a zero sum game. And the game then is to control it, the game. And um, it's winner take all. I think that it's very easy for us, uh, for adults, all college educated, all I think uh, on the political left, to point at Donald Trump and say, look what Donald Trump has done, look what Donald Trump has done. But I also understand that we need to look pre-Trump because it's not like look, Trump didn't show up and say, let me shut up actually. Uh, Hallie 
and, and Andrew, what are some of the like pre-Trump warning signs or actions that have paid the, paved the way for us to be at the point that we're at? Uh, Hallie, you go first, please. I mean, we already talked quite a bit about voter suppression, but mm. Donald Trump didn't invent that. Yeah, in fact, the Democratic Party gets credit for inventing that in the U.S. South. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm also struck thinking about like there are moments where like we had an opportunity to be like, we're going to back down from this. And like, I can't help I can't help but thinking about uh, the Merrick Garland confirmation and how uh, essentially Barack Obama was told to nominate somebody like Merrick Garland. And then he nominated Merrick Garland and the Senate Republicans were like, we're not even going to give him a hearing. Like, I, I think 20 years from now, when we look back on this time, we're going to see that as one of the as one of the, 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 the trip points or the points that like we realized was the point of no return. Uh, Andrew, you have a bunch of books that, that you're going through right now. Uh, what's some of your reading yeah. telling you about this voter suppression connection? Uh, so voter suppression. Um, well, first off, uh, the first book. It's called uh, Stolen Justice. Wait, just uh, for the record, I like you're showing us the book on the Zoom. <laughs> I know. Well, well, the thing is, I was like, I needed, like, if, it, if it's possible, a reference point. But um, <laughs> no, but this is, my name is Andrew. Here is my book. <laughs> um, Stolen Justice. No, I, I, I highly suggest anybody, I don't care if you're a person of color, I don't care, like, who you are. If you want a reference book for this coming election and maybe elections moving forward, uh, Stolen Justice is basically the story of American or African-Americans and voting rights. And it basically, uh, to kind of sum up everything, um, it goes back to the 1860s, 1870s, fresh after Reconstruction. It was like, hey, you guys are free. Hey, can we vote? No. And so you have a bunch of chapters that's full of, you know, where moments of where African-Americans had an opportunity and, you know, some actually did at a time, but then that was taken away. And so um, it's it's basically about that journey. But to Hallie's point, you know, kind of uh, the tipping point for us as a country uh, with this whole divide um, that actually comes from another book uh, called The Red and the Blue by uh, Steve Kornacki. And it talks about how America's political identities just became polarized. Like it, there's no more. And he and, and, and Kornacki does a great job of not putting it on the media, not putting it on politicians in D.C. He's like, hey, we all kind of, you know, put something into the mixer and and screwed things up but uh i think two things for me that's that have put us where we're at is for my generation the 2000 election because that was the first time that i saw the political and i was in fifth grade but my parents would watch the news every day and i'm like so wait so it's a tie so like won't they just both become president like but then when you saw it go to the supreme court and the Supreme Court just decided on party lines, you're like, wait a minute, this is kind of weird. But then um, I think for me personally, uh, the war in Iraq, and, I, and you guys are like, why the war in Iraq? But it was kind of like the way Republicans and the way that it was built over time, and it was like they built this narrative and uh, all credit to them because it's like, you convinced the American public we should do this. And we're like, eh, I think we should. But then it's like, no, trust me, we totally should. And then you realize, yeah, that was a bad idea. Mm -mm, nope. And I think we're so entrenched in that now that it's so hard to go back. And now that's sparked this patriotism that's masked as racism. And it's we're so far off the cliff that I don't know what normal would look like, whether we get, you know, two straight democratic presidents. So we're going to take a break here. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the new nerd farmers book. Uh, we're going to talk about the use of political violence. And we're going to talk about specific policies that have been put into place uh, by the Trump administration that are pushing us towards a point of no return with democracy. We'll be back. Mm -hmm. 
Hello, I'm Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, We Art Tacoma. This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by TAPCO, Pierce County's original credit union. You might already know that credit unions are not-for-profit financial cooperatives with a focus on enriching their members instead of big bank shareholders. TAPCO is committed to serving Tacoma and Pierce County, just like Channel 253. That means when you put your money there, you put it back into our community. Think about it. You go to the night market, you go to the Grand, and you shop at local stores. So why not keep your money local too? TAPCO offers the products and services you need. Home loans, auto loans, checking and savings, online and mobile banking, all with lower fees and better rates than big banks. Plus, TAPCO donates to local causes and supports our community in other ways, so you can feel good about helping your neighbors. To learn more about our local choice for all of your banking needs, visit tapcocu.org. My thanks to TAPCO for their support of this podcast and Channel 253. And we are back. I want to thank you for downloading the show. Channel 253 is a community effort centered in Tacoma, Washington, with voices from all over the world. Uh, we try to give you conversations and voices you won't hear elsewhere. We try to give you points of view you won't hear elsewhere. We try to provide you with a version of the facts that we believe is helpful to make you a more informed citizen and then to act both globally and locally. If you like what we do on the network, if you like this episode, uh, please consider checking out some of our other shows. I highly recommend right now IWL, the Interchangeable White Ladies. Uh, they're on a run of episodes about educational equity. Uh, there's one coming out with Shay Martin, it may be out already, that is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, Crossing Division right now is like the probably most important show. It's Tacoma's talk show. And they're talking about all of the events that are happening with the COVID outbreak back home. And so if you are enjoying this show, try our other shows. And if you're enjoying this show, please think about supporting our work uh, by getting a membership. Memberships at Channel 253 are $4 a month or $40 a year. And you can pick them up on channel253.com slash membership. Uh, it's cheaper than a latte a month. And I think this show being a, uh, a beacon of democracy uh, for the community is, is worth their support. All right. Speaking of beacons of democracy, speaking of like community support, speaking of uh, kind of upcoming programming, Hallie, you have been instrumental in me picking the next Nerd Farm Reads book. And just by the way, if you don't follow uh, Hallie on social media, she's a vociferous reader, vociferous thinker, like just all around good follow. Uh, can you talk about the book that we're reading right now? Yes. Um, we are going to be reading Know My Name by Chanel Miller. So if you're not familiar with this book, it just came out this previous fall, and it is the autobiography or memoir of the previously unnamed victim in the Stanford swimmer rape case uh, from a number of years back. So this is the story that you probably all remember where there was the young woman um, who was out at a party, uh, attempted rape, uh, sexual assault by this, pro I'm doing air quotes because we're on Zoom, uh, but it's by this <laughs> this promising young swimmer at Stanford, um, kind of preppy young white man, everything that you'd expect. Uh, he The assault was halted in process by two Swedish exchange students who came up and kind of chased him off. And, and when they talk about what they saw, um, they can't hold it together like they they cried in the trial because they were so horrified and um what i'm i'm going on for way too long about this book it's it's very very good <laughs> um and th this is this 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 woman was always anonymous she was an emily doe for a long long time and this is her kind of just reclaiming her story and telling it herself and what i found so powerful about this book i am not a crier I, there's very little that makes me cry except for the final uh, movie in the Lord of the Rings series. But I sobbed through this book. Um, it's I've never read anything that feels like a clearer portrayal of what it feels like to walk through this world in a female identifying body and the constant lack of physical safety that comes with that. And it's something that even the wokest, most feminist man cannot understand because you are not walking through the world um, with that experience. And I just wish that every man would read this book just to get a little glimpse of um, just kind of that lack of safety and the, and the fear that, that, that comes along with being a woman. 
Okay. Thank you for that. So yeah, please, please, please go to your local bookseller or order online, get it from your library, get it on Libvox. Uh, don't use Amazon. Uh, get your hand on this book, please. Know My Name by Ch Chanel Miller. And then what I'd like you to do is, if you're listening right now, tweet about the book using hashtag Nerd and Fire Reads, and we'll include your tweets in our conversation about the book in about a month. All right. Uh, Ingrid, I want to go to you. I have talked multiple times on the show about the summer of 2017 being a very pivotal moment to me. I was sitting in Mexico, in Tulum, Mexico. Uh, a hurricane kind of blew through, so we were basically like stuck in our apartment that we were renting uh, for about a week. And I watched Charlottesville unfold. When we're talking about the end of democracy, you have to also include like the idea, like the rise of political violence. What are some coarsening or, or how has our discourse been coarsened and what is the role of violence, uh, not state to citizen, but citizen to citizen in like the accelerating decline of American democracy? Ooh, this, is a, this is a deep rabbit hole. And I think it's for me, it's really the it's the vein that if we don't take a hard look at this, we are never going to we have no hope of reclaiming democracy if we don't take a really hard look at this. One of the things, so a couple of things I want to connect here. One is that, um, and, they, and they actually mentioned this in the book and it was like weirdly reaffirming because I've been saying since the 90s, man, at what point did the GOP get a daily memo on their talking points? Because it seemed at some point, suddenly they were all on message. And one of the things they talk about in the book was that there was actually, it wasn't, it wasn't daily, but it was monthly memo that went out. And uh, the focus was, key talking points. And this was under Newt Gingrich, uh, his, his vision and his leadership. Um, and, and the idea was to begin to create, to vilify certain groups of people and to create coalition by um, cutting certain people from the herd. And so the GOP, that's when their, their rhetoric really escalated. It's when they became far more hateful uh, and hate-filled, overtly anyway, um, in, in ways that they hadn't been for overtly for a while. And uh, when a real toxic masculinity began to be expressed, which I think really hit its its sort of high point during the Tea Party, the ascendancy of the Tea Party. And Charlottesville, for me, is this logical conclusion of this decades of, of stoking this, this feeling among white supremacists and, and white nationalists in the United States. So one of the things that happened at Charlottesville that just stunned me was a, there was a video clip, and I actually went to go find it last night. Um, I couldn't find it, but I only saw it once or twice, and then it went away. But it was the tiki torch bearing, uh, you know, unite the right folk, and they were chanting. Uh, you, the, the one you see most often, they're saying, um, "You, you will not replace us." But the one I saw that really stunned me was, "We will not be left behind." And those are two different messages. You know, they were, I think they were saying both things, but the "we won't be left behind." I think you know it. it explains a feeling of helplessness as they are watching the culture move beyond their values, beyond their um, sense of dominance, their sense of centrality to the, to the culture. And because of that, you know, this uh, a backlash that has always been there, but became so overt and bald and unapologetic. Um, and, and this institutionalization of violence is an expression of that. And so I'm thinking of everything from police violence. I mean, how many thousands of black men and women have died in police violence in the last 10 years? And it's gotten to the point where we just sort of shrug and move on. Um, I think about the immigration ban. The opening salvo of the Trump administration was to say, you don't get to come here anymore. Even if you are actually legally here and you're somewhere else, you don't get to come back. The detention centers, the ripping away of children from their families. And it's become this this drama that we're all watching unfold. And I, if, if you'll give me one more second, I want to connect it to something else that I think is really important. And, and the important and why it's a deep vein of our moral fiber that we seem to have lost touch with is, why are we refusing to react to what is happening? Why are we passive as all of this is going on? And I have a whole other spiel about that. But I think that's the question we have to ask ourselves. And part of it has to do with that identity politics, because it's them versus us, but it's also because part of identity politics is we get cut into smaller and smaller groups. And so uh, do you care about women's rights? Do you care about the rights of people of color? Do you care about the rights of lower socioeconomic folks? Are you, you know, do you see yourself as cutting across all of those? Are those our collective interests or do you see yourself as just taking care of yourself? Hallie, you and I have talked a little bit about political polarization 
I wonder what are some ways that you see as being a path to transcending the political polarization that exists in U.S. politics, either at the national level or the local level? Uh, well, I wish I had a good answer for that because that could heal our democracy back together. <laughs> um, gosh, I need to think about that one. I feel very at a loss right now just um, – one of the the elements of this book that has really stuck with me is when they talk about polarization, they talk about um, it's not just uh, my party or the highway, but it's this this establishment of fear um, between political opposites that is very real. And, um, you know, I personally have some fear about being in a large group of people who part of their political ideology is believing that women and people of color are less than, and I don't think that's a baseless fear, but it's not a good thing when that, when those views are adopted by, um, a, uh, or replicated by a, a dominant political party. And I don't know how to start getting past that because it's so emotional and not rational and, I've tried to have some of these conversations with extended family members or, you know, people on the internet, if I feel like arguing into the void on a Saturday night. Um, and I don't know how to get past that, um, just that gut reaction that people have. Like there's no reasoning with emotion and that's where I feel really stuck. But I'll argue you've had success with this because like, so one of the, the places where, like, you started to become my favorite person in the world was, like, yeah. when you were doing organizing work for Tacoma Against Nazis. And part of that work with Tan was going into communities of people that, like, weren't activists and weren't necessarily, like, air quotes, woke Internet folks and trying to get them to care about this issue. And you were able to activate people. Uh, I think that some of the tools that you used in order to do that might be successful also in motivating the electorate politically do you think that same school school set nope do you think that skill set instead of tools you've developed is transferable um that is a good point um i think one of the key pieces of that work was to lead by example and just show up i mean back to ingrid's point about why are we not fighting against all of this i think people feel really overwhelmed and they don't know how to start chipping away at a problem like the rise of neo-Nazis in America. And if you could just get a small group of people to say, look, I don't know how to solve this entire problem, but I'm going to show up and try to fight against part of it. I think that actually can be quite motivating for, um, you know, friends and neighbors. We're not going to end white supremacy in the United States, but if we can fight against a little piece of that, um, that can be effective. Um, I am going to make a connection that sounds very stupid, but bear with me. <laughs> Under this quarantine, I've been watching Narcos Mexico. And one of the plot points in Narcos Mexico is about the 1988 Mexican election. And looking at the Mexican election of 1988, you basically have a, the birth of a democratic socialist party. But that democratic socialist party is a party that is largely rural, uh, and is not white appearing Mexicans, but like uh, more poor, more lower income M Mexican nationals. Ingrid, I'm fascinated by where the American electorate is not showing up. And I part of me thinks that like if we look around the world, if we look at Hong Kong, if we look at Syria, uh, we look at Russia and Moscow, the protests. We look at Lebanon. We look at Chile. There's been a blueprint that's been laid out for how protests work around the world and that protests in like in, very recently have been able to get really big change. Besides the fact that we aren't seeing protests, we also basically have a situation where voter turnout is super, super low. So Ingrid, kind of two parts. One, why is political participation in the U.S. so bad? And what damage does our lack of engagement in politics cause? Like, what, what, what are we allowing to happen by not engaging? 
Yeah. So um, I teach at the university and one of the things I do is really try to register every single student to vote and uh, try to have conversations I, like you. <laughs> I try to farm nerds um, and, and and to really get people to think about where their stake in something is to start from, well, this matters to me, so I'm going to study this, this issue. Um, but what's so fascinating, and even my students who are pretty politically active, um, what they talk about is how, how they spend their time. And where, what they read or what they what they consume in terms of information or just stuff in the world, what music they listen to, all of that, right? And for me, all this comes down to the way that we think that if we buy a product by a certain company, um, that we are doing a political act, right? And and I, I think we've been we've been convinced that certain things in this country are political acts when they're not actually political acts. Right? So me consuming stuff is not exactly a political act. I've been convinced I can vote with my dollars. And I can, but that's not exactly political activity. Um, so I, I, I think of the COVID-19 emails that came out, you know, over the last six weeks. And it's like, this is what our company is doing about this. And this is what our company is doing about this. As if somehow messaging each other is political action. Me tweeting is not a political act. It feels really good. And I do it a lot as if it is a political act. But going back to what Hallie was saying, me showing up is a political act. Going back to what Andrew said much earlier, me standing in line for 10 hours to vote, that is a political act. And I think that the, the, the reason we have low participation um, in politics, but even just voting, is that people are not informed. And I think one of the reasons we're not informed is that politics is complex. You have to kind of pay attention locally, like, what, who's my mayor? What's she doing? What's the city council doing? I have to kind of keep tabs on things. And it's, we don't do a great job of messaging uh, to engage people at the most basic level, like, what's my stake in this? Politically, it's boring. Um, and, and participatory politics can be incredibly boring, right? And so people want to do it once. They want to go to protest. They want a one and done. And now I've done my political act. And I think we have not inculcated in people a sense of this is a lifestyle. <laughs> to be politically engaged is a lifestyle. And, and, and it's like you got to listen and you got to be curious. So the damage is being caused. Oh, I, um, can I get my Tiger King reference in here? <laughs> <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Um, I've been thinking a lot about Tiger King as this cultural zeitgeist, uh, and I, I swear it's really connected to this book for me. Um, Tiger King is like this exhibit A for me in a culture that where suffering and political violence is a spectacle, like you know the, the wages of our political system is a spectacle, so lower socioeconomic people sort of struggling to find a job, so they have to go work at this guy's zoo and work under these horrible conditions. And those of us who watch have this false sense of privilege, right? So, so I, I was, I, mean, I was like, I, I couldn't stop watching that TV show. I did not want to watch that show. I watched it all the way through, and I, I kept thinking, why am I watching this? And at the end, I realized it's like you're rubbernecking at an accident. And you think you're separate from that accident. You're going to drive past it and be fine. But at some point, you crash into the car in front of you that's rubbernecking at that accident. And that, to me, is like exactly what's happening with Tiger King. We all couldn't stop watching it. We crashed into each other. But really what's going on in that show is it's showing all the ways in which power is disproportionate and has everything to do with economics. We all have an economic state in voting. I honestly don't know why people don't vote, but that's the outcome. Hallie, you were church black lady head nodding about uh, brands when Ingrid was talking. Go ahead, please. Okay, first, I feel called out, but in a really good way. I'm wearing a shirt that says electable on it. I rage bought it the day Elizabeth Warren dropped out of the race. And you're totally right. That did absolutely nothing for politics in America, but it made me feel a little better to spend money on this sweatshirt. Uh, <laughs> but I think what you were saying about... Um, you know, the emails coming out about COVID and um, kind of like the the entry of capitalism into politics is really interesting. I work for a big brand. I've, I've been at a, several different big brands over the last um, like five to seven years of my career. And so one of the things that I track with my colleagues are things like brand reputation and consumer sentiment and what people want to buy and who they want to buy it from and why. And one really fascinating trend that has emerged over recent years is this sense that people have more trust in the brands that they have affinity with than with the government. And so yeah. consumers are feeling like there's a total lack of leadership at the federal level and they want to turn to companies that make them feel good to shop with because they feel like there is more accountability and more leadership 
um, which is quite disturbing because there's absolutely no accountability. But you look at things like the climate movement and there's a total lack of leadership. And so companies are stepping up like Procter and Gamble is stepping into the into the mix. And <laughs> these brands are having to, to fill the void in a way that just kind of perpetuates that disconnect, because the more I hear from the companies that I shop with about what they're doing uh, to reduce their carbon emissions, the more I'm like, yeah, I want to keep shopping there. And then that makes me feel like that's my political action because forget the government. They're not doing anything. I'm going to keep giving money to, you know, X, Y, or Z company with this great climate commitment. I'll stop there. I can go on about this for a long time. The not voting thing is super hard for me. Like if I, my mother, like, taught me about voting like she would drag me first to St. John's on Hilltop and then to Al Davies and I would go into the polling booth and I would watch her mark a ballot and when I turned 18 I uh, basically bought a pack of cigarettes I bought a lottery ticket I registered to vote and I got a lap dance like that was my 18th birthday like that was like <laughs> voting listen I, I, I'm, I haven't always been this person my 18th birthday. <laughs> well there you go uh, like voting is a thing in my family and we vote because we understand that voting matters. We, we live in this moment right now where I, I'm, I'm going to smother the next person who tells me that, like, they're not going to vote for Joe Biden because Bernie lost. Like, I, I'm not even telling you that you need to vote for Joe Biden, but you better bring your punk ass to the polls or mail your punk ass ballot in and vote for the senator that you want, for the member of Congress that you want in the House representatives, for the state legislator that you want, for the governor that you want, for the state council member that you want. This idea that, like, I'm mad, so instead of engaging more in the process, I'm going to disengage, is like the most counterintuitive, like, ah, it, 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 it rattles my brain is beyond comprehension for me. Andrew, I want to turn to you for a couple of reasons here. So okay. you are the member of the media in here, and I want to talk the a little bit. liberal media, of, get it right. Yeah, the media. <laughs> okay, and I actually want to talk about, like, the failure of the liberal media in this space. Okay. I am I am really struck by the New York Times tweet from yesterday, uh, yesterday of recording. Mm -hmm. So the the commander in chief, the president of the United States, basically stands up and intimates that people should consider uh, ingesting. Uh, oh God, it's so frustrating right now. In ingesting uh, the sun somehow, like sunlight, and also in ingesting uh, disinfectants. Yeah. The New York Times writes a, writes a story that basically says the president controversially suggests people consume disinfectants, a step that many experts disagree with. How, how, how much is this like can this 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 passive voice conditional like deference fake neutrality bullshit language of media a part of? Yes, that's yeah. Here's my because my question is is like, do folks in the newsroom look at their editor and be like, nah, fam, I ain't doing that, or do they like, like is it, where is this coming from? How how does how does this happen every time, every time, every time with the air quote liberal media? Okay, so this is something I've had to battle with for so long, even like going back to high school journalism, um, where it's this passive, it's this we have to play. We have to play both sides because somebody's going to get upset. That's life. People are going to get upset. Um, but yes, the New York Times, which I subscribe to the New York Times, I'm, I support the New York Times. I have friends who work at the New York Times. But it feels like, and this is even before the Trump administration, it felt like it was this whole both sides. We have to mas we have to massage a terrible take and a terrible opinion just so, oh, they really didn't mean that. But we see where they're coming from. No, that's a dumbass answer. Let's <laughs> let's just call it for what it is. But yeah, like increasingly, The New York Times has done that. And I had I, I saw the headline and I, I didn't even usually I'll angrily scroll through and read it. And I'm just like, Nope, I'm saving my sanity. Um, because you know, and it, it's, it's this weird, I can't pick one side or the other because somebody's going to get upset. You're going to get up. You're going to get people upset regardless. 
it's it's called having an opinion, whether it is neutral or whether it is polarizing. Like people are going to get upset regardless. And the New York Times is trying to, because they really are the newspaper of record in this country, they're trying to play both sides. But at the same time, there's got to be a point where there's just blunt honesty. And the American public, by and large, is not buying it anymore. And I think they need to realize that, yes, you you have this large bubble. But when you go outside of it, yeah, some people are going to get upset. But at the same time, mostly people agree with you. That's why everybody gets frustrated when you sit there and you have this big drawn out um, process of endorsing a de- uh, democratic uh, candidate for president, but then you go with both Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. And it's like, what, it looks, I have no problem with them endorsing a woman, but it was just like, it was this long drawn out process where it was like, well, we don't want to upset moderates, but we don't want to upset the progressive left. So here, it's a tie and we're all just like, really? <laughs> no, for sure. Ingrid, please go ahead. So this is, this is one of those norms that has been eroded, right? There was a time when uh, the New York times uh, had a little more spine and they would have called out the president for saying we should inject Lysol as a way to solve COVID-19. People already ran the story about the drug and I can't remember the name of it. Um, or two people that died from, from taking the advice of the president they heard on Fox News, right? You know, but when we've got the New York Times wading into that bullshit mix and fomenting this misinformation, we have a serious slide of cultural norms. And the thing is, like, there's this disconnect between what we say and what we do. This goes back to the messaging of the GOP for me. There's this idea that we have to all we're all playing like this political theater. Um, but, but it's not what we actually believe or, or want to do. And I'm like, I, I actually don't even, I, I, I assume it's because of market share. I got to go back to market share. And the New York Times is afraid to lose market share. And, and because the GOP is pushing so hard against the liberal media, um, they're afraid to get in the sights of that firing. It's, it's fascinating for it's fascinating for me because unlike my second read of the book, one of the elements that kind of came to my mind is the like the idea of gatekeepers. And we spent like the entire 1990s and early aughts like dancing on the grave of gatekeepers and celebrating that we were burning gatekeepers to the ground. And then I think we're seeing more and more in our politics we actually need gatekeepers. And one of the gatekeepers that actually is a hero of this book in, in one way is like a functioning political party. But that, that's my own thing. I, I, that's a whole different conversation. Hallie, please go ahead. Oh, this is back on the media, just that that um, this idea of objectivity and balance um, that we cling to almost to the point of absurdity where there is, you know, a, a story about climate change does not require the voice of a climate denier to be objective. A story about voter suppression among black Americans does not require the voice of a white supremacist to be balanced. Like you don't have to are, have are the sure? opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know when it stops. Like in, in a time in which like lies are being trafficked in, what the culture needs more than ever is somebody to be an honest arbiter and say truth. But our media institutions are not willing to do that. And I don't know how to, to, to unscrew that. And it's, it's not my job to unscrew it. But the other thing is, is that like, if the media is not going to call a spade a spade, then it's up to the political parties and established institutions to do, to do so. Like Ingrid's tweets aren't going to stop Donald Trump. My podcast isn't going to start Donald Trump. Stop Donald Trump. Uh, Hallie, your jogging isn't going to stop Donald Trump. Book clubs aren't going to stop Donald Trump. What's going to stop Donald Trump is somebody within the Republican Party and the Republican establishment saying, nah, fam, we're out. Like, show us the exits. It's not going to happen. Right. Right. <laughs> I would say that I think the reason why is it kind of goes back to a little bit of what we were talking about with polarization and having power. Donald Trump and the GOP establishment has convinced everybody, hey, this is a this scoreboard. We won. And you hear it. And when when Donald Trump says uh, in in his press conferences and in those daily briefings, which 
are just I, I can't even listen to him anymore. Um, I just look at the low lights from them and he'll <laughs> sit there and go, well, we won. Well, I won. Well, I, I, I won. And I'm like, God, and like it, it's this we won. We have power. And he's convinced, I'd say, 85 percent of the GOP electorate, uh, you know, down ballot and even into the public that we won. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. At the end of the day, we won. We have power. And so it's just it's this, you know, it's this never ending cycle of it doesn't matter what happens. We won. We have power. And it's so frustrating to see. Which goes back to Ingrid's point earlier on about political ideology no longer being ideology and political like party affiliation and voting habits being like a cultural marker. Please. I just want to say quickly, that I, I mentioned this earlier, but I think in some ways they really have won because Operation Red Map, the gerrymandering, gerrymandering of all those states to become conclusively red states until that, the redistricting gets changed is a win. The way they've been stacking the courts is a win. And for me, it was Brett Kavanaugh, who was a sort of like, you know, the apex of this whole experience of the winning on the GOP side, where here's this guy who was just in any other context, it would have been really clear that he was not acceptable to Supreme Court justice, but because on, on the basis of the weight of Congress and the weight of uh, the president do what he wants at this point, because they are winning, he was put into, you know, he was put into office same with the impeachment. I mean, you know, all of that evidence. And now I, it was clear that the Senate wasn't going to dismiss Donald Trump, but the GOP, in the face of all that evidence, acting as if it was not legitimate, just, you know, that's when I thought the game is lost. Like, we are never going to look at them again and say, ah, oh, they're going to lead us out of this, which kind of goes back to what I think they, the book calls for, which is that we have to make a coalition across these identity lines. And if we don't do that, we are lost. I think I was going to mention impeachment, too, where it feels like most recently, like that was the last exit before the highway. And that was kind of our last chance for a couple of folks to get off. And they just chose to not do that. Well, but that demonstrates how crazy this is. We're talking about mm -hmm. a book about we're talking about a book for the second time in eight months, How Democracies Die. In between there, there's been the impeachment of the president and a trial along party lines. And that did not come up until 60 minutes in the conversation. Andrew. Okay, well, no, because you, you guys made a great point, and, and this is what kind of cracks me up, and it's it's more Shakespearean and Machiavellian and uh, this just this political theater of, while all of this is going on, while he, you know, at the beginning of the year, which feels like seven years ago, he is on trial. We begin the year with a trial of the President of the United States. And we go through all of this and the Democrats and Congress presents their case, which is a fantastic case, which should have been ball game by day two. And then we have Susan Collins kind of come out and say, well, he effed up, but scoreboard tricks. And, um, and then he gives that campaign rally speech in the blue room and then like the next day he's you know he's doing the state of the union but while all of this is going on there's a global pandemic built slowly building in the background and it's kind of like a mushroom cloud that's <laughs> like in slow motion and he's just kind of talking and in the background the mushroom cloud gets bigger and bigger and it's like hey sir there's a there's a mushroom cloud back there don't worry. We, Hey, we won. Remember that. And it's just like, yeah, like, like Hallie was saying, it was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I, I think to there Ingrid's point, like to Ingrid's point, like the answer is we have to build meaningful coalitions across, across race and class lines. And I, I think one element that's really coming and being just grounded in my mind right now is, is that like the left in America is right on policy, but has to get better at politics and has to get better at persuading. Uh, like the American left does an awful job of persuading. All right. So we typically end the show with a thing called the wind down. And so the wind down is your opportunity to share with the audience 
uh, some things that you think they should check out culturally and people should listen to. But instead, because we have a big cast today, I'm going to flip the script. I'm going to give the guests on the show some homework, and I'm actually going to invite them back for a subsequent episode for a conversation. Uh, so I'm, I spent the first couple of weeks of the quarantine not reading very much and watching a lot of Netflix. My reading game's back on now. I'm working on Sarah Kinzior's uh, new book. I'm working on N.K. Jemison's, sorry, N.K. Jemison's uh, The Fifth Season. But one of the things that I watched that I think might be the most insane documentary I've ever seen in my entire life is called How to Fix a Drug Scandal on, on Netflix. It is the story of two different drug labs in the state of Massachusetts who had some of the most insane fraud happening uh, in the history of all of human creation. And thousands of people in Massachusetts were convicted of drug charges on evidence that was questionable at best. And it, the state of Massachusetts tried to cover it up. Y'all watch this series. It's like four episodes. I'm going to have as many of these folks as I can back on to talk about it. We're going to do a two-part episode. Uh, Salong's going to be on the first part. Like, it is absolutely effing, effing insane. Like, I'm not going to spoil the show for you, but like, y'all, a white lady was making crack in a drug lab and got wait. 18 months in jail. Making wait, crack wait, cocaine in the know. drug lab. Yes. What was that? Was that, was that about like the nun or something where she was like... Nah. Bro, okay, okay, so sorry, sorry, when, sorry, different, when, different, different. When we room. hang up, sorry. when we hang up, just go to the Netflix and then DM me. <laughs> Got it. All right, folks, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. If people want to follow you on the socials, where should they look? Andrew, you first. Uh, Aham TNT. Um, I'm in. I'm in the middle of a lot of draft tweets, so I <laughs> apologize in advance. But at the same time, I don't care because it's funny. <laughs> Ingrid, how about you? I'm bad academic on Twitter. And that's still like the best handle ever. Like that's such a great handle. Uh, Ingrid, talk about your book too really fast. Oh yeah. My book, Hi, Drugs, Desire, and a Nation of Users is about how everything we think we know about drugs in the United States is wrong. It's dense, but it's dope. Like <laughs> it's dense, but dope. And Hallie? Uh, quarantine has really flipped my social media habits and I'm back on Twitter in a way that I haven't been since 2010. So you can find me there. Hallie <laughs> Rebecca. I'm maybe the most active user of the nerd farm raids hashtag so won't be hard to find me and i love you for it so <laughs> please y'all uh, I, I think my takeaways from this are one get a copy of uh know my name read it and take a look at it Two, think about how you can build solidarity ac across race class and political lines in order to stop this nation from sliding in fascism and uh three watch how to fix a drug scandal and check us out in a month because that ish is wild Thank you for coming on, y'all. Wakanda forever. Wash your damn hands. Stay inside. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. I'm using Chuck's Vampire Diaries podcast mic today. Can I please? That's legit. What, what was the name <laughs> of that show? I want to I just find an episode and listen. What's the name of the show? Chuck and Tina spread VD. Check, please. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.